Let's continue our study there, if we can, please, this evening. As you see in Luke chapter 7, the, the Lord Jesus has already been baptized, and now he went from baptism to uh, fasting, and then uh, he went back to his hometown, got threatened, and, and, uh, and had to escape uh, their, their, their desire to throw him off a cliff. And then he went in, into different places and found disciples. And he had many disciples that followed him, but he chose 12 that would be apostles, that he would, they would be with him, and uh, he would send them forth to preach. They would not, most of them would be modern-day evangelists or missionaries going other places. Uh, they did not stay in one place um, very long. They went to other places and were sent forth. But uh, many folks followed him, but those were the 12, and he spent a lot of time with those in particular. After he chose them, he gave them the Sermon on the Mount, which is challenging them to understand life on different terms. Uh, realizing that uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't sound logical. When, you have, when you're having a poor or you're having a very downcast, what will be blessed about that? He said, if someone smites you on one cheek, turn the other. If he asks you to go one mile, go two miles. That doesn't sound logical. He began to tell them, he said, you know, you've heard it said that if uh, somebody, uh, if somebody uh, uh, commits adultery, it's sin. But I say to you, if you look upon a woman, Everything he did, he elevated it to another level and realized that God's people who were going to follow him in a disciplined way would live and march to the beat of a different drum. His ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our, our, our thoughts, saith the Lord. And he began to educate them on the kingdom of heaven, much different than the kingdom of this world. In the process of that, he would spend the next uh, three and a half years traveling with those men and instructing them. Uh, he chose them. He uh, spent time with them. He expected their obedience and their consecration. He gave of himself to those, uh, those servants of Christ particularly, imparted to them. He demonstrated them how to do things. He showed them how to handle large crowds, with the, sitting in groups of 50 and 100. I'm sure that uh, those things they saw Jesus do on, the, on Pentecost, whenever 3,000 people responded to the gospel and 3,000 people wanted to get baptized, I, I imagine it was overwhelming. To the, but to these disciples, they had seen that done before. I bet someone said, let's get them in groups of 50 and 100. <laughs> let's, let's, let's organize this. You take these folks, you take them, you take them, and we'll baptize them along the, road, the, the, the Jordan River or along the Sea of Galilee or wherever it is that they are. It was probably in Jerusalem, so probably in a different place. But he would, they, would, they would be able to see, and then he would give them responsibility. And then he would discuss with them, and eventually he would reproduce himself in those men. But we find him now in his earthly ministry, and he's traveling. He has gone to Capernaum, where he set up his, his earthly ministry uh, on the north side of the, uh, the Galilean Sea there. And he has set up his, his responsibilities there. Many of his disciples are from that very region. He was from Nazareth, but he wasn't welcome there. When he went there last time, they tried to kill him. So he set up his earthly ministry in Capernaum and would work out of there and, of course, go down from Galilee down to Judea for the feast three times a year. And he would take the disciples with him because he would keep the, the responsibilities, but minister wherever he went. In chapter 7, there are five encounters that he has. First of all, he has an encounter with a centurion. A centurion that, uh, that don't, no doubt had an attraction to the God of the Bible and the God of the Jews. 
He loved the Jews. He had even provided a synagogue for them. And yet uh, he had a servant that was sick. We know he had a good reputation. We know he had cared for people. He was a man of integrity and care and, and had some faith of some sort. And uh, the people said to him, he went to the Jewish leaders, go, go. Um, would you see if this Jesus that's healing everybody, would he come and heal my servant? And so the Jewish leader went and found Jesus and said, he's worthy. When the man came back, he said, no, I'm not worthy. Whenever he found he was coming to his house, he said, please, don't, you don't need to come to my house. He said, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy. I was nervous about asking you to begin with, and I certainly don't need you to come to my house. I'm not worthy that you would even come under my roof. But he reminded him, he said, look, um, he said, uh, I'm a man that I have authority over me, and I have authority under me. And the people under me, they, I tell them to do this, and they do it. I tell them to go, they go. Tell them to come, they come. I say, do this, and they do it. How about you just telling God to heal my servant, and uh, that'll be fine with me. And Jesus, on his way to that man's house, when his friends came and told him that, he didn't even come. He sent his servants to come tell him, my master doesn't want you to come to the house. He just wants you to speak the word. And he turned around and said, boy, I'm not seeing that kind of faith even with my people. This guy's a, a Gentile. This guy works for the Roman government. This guy has more faith in me than my own people do. Then we find that he shows us that distance is not hard for God. He can do anything, anywhere. He's omniscient and omnipresent. So he doesn't have to be there. And by the way, when you don't see God working, he's still working. And he doesn't have to be right there uh, with you and you have to see everything. A lot of things can happen. And by the way, they went back and found out the guy was fine. But he also so shows us for Jesus, distance is not an issue and death is not an issue. Because he leaves that Capernaum and he goes to a little village called Nain. Nain is about 24 miles away, within a short of 24 miles. He went there and lots of disciples followed him, not just the apostles, but lots of disciples. So there's a large entourage following him, making a long journey. They arrive the next day in this city and they come to the gate. And while they're going in, there is a funeral procession coming out. Two entourages collide uh, at the gate. And Jesus has compassion on the mother that's following. She's a widow and she doesn't have any other family. This is her only son and he's dead. And the guys that are pallbearers, he comes to them and he has compassion on this lady. No doubt there are people playing the flute and playing funeral dirges and there's someone who may be a paid mourner telling people, getting their attention and tell them, this lady's lost her son, it's her only son, and mourn with us. And, but Jesus breaks up a funeral. Whatever funeral he went to, he broke it up. And he went to the pallbearers, they stopped. He tells the young man, arise. Three people he healed from the dead. One, the little girl that's about 12 years old, he said, damsel, arise. This one, he says, young man, arise. He got up and started talking. And then he said, Lazarus, arise. And then, of course, he himself was resurrected by the power of God. I'm grateful for that, and I, I, I just, it just shows us that death is not an issue for Jesus. Distance is not an issue. How many are praying for someone that's an extended location? They're somewhere else in the world, but you're asking God to do something for them. Anybody like that with me doing that? Yeah, I think that's great. God can be wherever you're not, and he can be working in places that that you need something done. 
I think it's good. He's, he's not challenged by distance. He's not challenged by death. But in our passage tonight, he's not challenged by doubt. This is a very unusual story. It's found here in Luke 7. It's also found in Matthew chapter 11. It's the time that the most unlikely person you could imagine doubted Jesus. His name was John. John the Baptist. A unique story. Let's look at it if we can, please, and we'll make some, make, some, uh, make some applications here, beginning in verse number 18. And the disciples of John showed him, I think John, of all these things. So the, the word got out that he had brought a dead man back to life, and he had healed a servant without even going to the house. And all the word got out in verse 17, and the disciples of John went and saw John in jail. This is about a, hour, this is about a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. So we have two more years before he goes to the cross. And by the way, I'll just say, you can't leapfrog time when working with people. It takes time to develop. It doesn't take a long time to develop a vibrant church for God. It takes a lifetime. It doesn't take a long, it doesn't take a long time to build a strong bus route. It takes as long as you're going to stay there to do it. Yeah, Sunday school classes ebb and flow. Churches ebb and flows. Bus ministries ebb and flow. Communities change. The demographics change. They're up and down. It just takes someone willing to stay at it for a lifetime. We find here that Jesus, the God-man, he would take him three and a half years to work in the hearts of those people. No doubt why he came to the earth was to give his life a ransom for many, but second to that was to train these 12. And everything he did was to bring glory to God and primarily to get into the hearts and minds of these 12 men. But we find here that, uh, that John, who had spent his entire life, he was six months older than Jesus. Elizabeth, his mother, and Zacharias, his father, was in the priest of Aaron. They were in the, in the tribe, of, tribe of Levi and descendants of Aaron. Elizabeth and Mary were somehow connected and, and related, maybe by marriage, because we know that Mary was from the tribe of Judah and Elizabeth was the tribe of Levi, but they were related in some way, cousins potentially. She was substantially older. Both of them had miraculous births and that one was uh, because of her age, the other one was because of her virginity. But they, they raised children six months of each other. John, born first, Mary was possibly there when John was born and rejoiced and helped Elizabeth. And she went back into, into her town of, of uh, Nazareth and there was uh, carried the baby till it was time to go down to Bethlehem. But John grew and grew. He was very specially anointed by the Lord. It was prophesied in Malachi that he would be a forerunner to the Lord, that there would be someone come that would turn the hearts of children to their fathers and the hearts of fathers to their children that would make plain path for the Lord Jesus to come, would notify the world that the Messiah was alive, and that's what he did. I don't know when his ministry took place. It could have been taking place at the age of 30. I don't know. But he was, a, he was from the tribe of Levi, but he didn't spend his time. I probably did not think, and God didn't need it. They needed another Pharisee in the Sanhedrin or in the priesthood in Jerusalem. So he spent his time out in the deserts. He didn't have soft clothes. He had camel's hair. He didn't eat the diet of the, of the, of the scribes and the, the, uh, the regular, the regular uh, priest at, at there. No, he had a different diet. He was a voice crying out in the wilderness. 
making way, making and preparing the way of the Lord Jesus. And he gathered an audience. Even from the wilderness, people began to realize this guy wasn't just a, a blowhard. He had something special. He had the anointing of God upon him. And while the Lord Jesus called us to the rebirth, John primarily called us to repentance. He would, he would preach hard. He didn't mess around. He hit you right in the snot box with the truth and wanted a response. And oftentimes got it. Matter of fact, you'll see in the book of Luke that whenever people heard him, they ask, what should we do? The publicans ask it. The soldiers ask it. The general population asks, what should we do? And he would tell them what to do. All those revolved around finances. Kind of interesting. But he was a hard charger and preached, but his message quickly transitioned to the fact that he needed to prepare God's people that the Messiah was alive. For the Jews have been waiting all of these years. Since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I think probably Eve thought maybe that Cain was potentially the Messiah. She got a man-child from the Lord. Maybe this is the, the child that would be short-lived, and this, this child would bruise Satan's head. It wasn't the case, obviously. However, they've been waiting for the Messiah, and now he has the forerunner, and he's telling them he's alive today. And if you believe this, repent and be baptized. And when people got baptized, they were acknowledging of their sin and their need for the Messiah, and they would, they would be ready for him. They, they believed he was here. One day, while John was baptizing people, Jesus got in the line. And when he approached John, the River Jordan, as he was baptizing people and he had probably already told them, that's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the world. But in that line, Jesus got in the line to be baptized, and John forbade him. He argued with him and says, I'm not going to baptize you. You can baptize me if you want to, but I'm not even worthy to untie your shoelaces. I'm not going to baptize you. And of course, the Lord Jesus suffered to be so now. Allow this to happen now. By the way, if you're not baptized and you haven't been baptized and you know you should get baptized, you should follow the same words that Jesus said. Suffer this to happen now. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Get it taken care of. And, and he said, let's do this now. It's fulfilled in all righteousness. It's what, it's what Jesus wants done. By the way, when you see the word righteousness, and you will see it many times in your Bible, the Bible majors on the concept of righteousness. Nothing is ever settled until it's settled right. Nothing's ever settled right until it's settled right with God. Why do you go soul winning? The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he that wins souls is wise. The word of God is given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. He's going to see, you're going to see righteousness come off the page of your Bible. And they that be wise shall shine the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Righteousness is going to come off because that's what the, really the Bible is for, is to tell me what is right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right with, with, with Christ. That's why Jesus got baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. It was the right thing to do. So we see, we see that here in the passage of Scripture. Well, when Jesus got baptized, of course, two things happened. The Shekinah glory of God, the heavens opened, and God's glory appeared on him as obvious as a bird would fly off a branch and land on his head. It was like, hey, something just happened to Jesus. God's glory descended on him. Number two, 
the voice of his father from heaven spoke and said, this is my beloved son. And basically is saying, this is my son and I love him. And he's made me happy. He's pleased me. I'm well pleased with him. And of course, he would take that into the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. And wherever God puts a period, Satan will put a question mark. And of course, the next thing that Satan says to Jesus, if thou be the son of God, of course, reminding and trying to cast doubt where God put uh, an emphatic imperative there, an emphatic statement. He said, this is my son. I love him and I'm pleased with him if you are the son of God. But nonetheless, it was obvious. There was a miracle that happened in his baptism, and John saw it. John heard it, I believe. But now time has gone by, and John is still preaching, and he finds himself in prison. In his preaching, he spoke about immorality and fornication, and he calls out the king, Herod, who has stolen his brother's wife, Herodias, from him and lured her into his life and was in an immoral, perverted affair with his sister-in-law. It was known throughout the kingdom, and John the Baptist called him out on it. When it got back to Herod, he said, well, look, if you're going to preach against me, you can do that in a jail cell. Go get him, arrest him. And they brought him to a jail cell that he would never see the light of day. It probably wasn't an easy time being John. But he would get reports from his young followers. They would come and tell him and no doubt bring food to him and and try to bring encouragement. And and he would ask them, how's Jesus doing? What's going on? And they would tell him all that they had heard. They heard, hey, listen, uh, we're over here. But I'm telling you, I hear people are being raised back from the dead. Lepers are doing that. A lot of things are going on. He's got large groups of people. Of course, he said in John 3, 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He said, I'm good with that. But he was in a hard time. And I think uh, during this hard time, things were not coming out the way that he thought they were going to come out. I think in his own heart, he thought, by now, we'd at least be able to push off this Roman rule. I didn't think I was going to go out in a jail cell and have my head cut off. They're telling me they're sharpening the guillotine. That I'm never going to see the light of day. It's a joke among the, the soldiers and the wardens here. He said, I I thought by now at least all the preaching that I've done and what Jesus has done, there at least would not be so many hypocrites in the Sanhedrin. Some of those seats could be filled with genuine people. What's going on? Things had not come to where he thought they would come, and plus he's, he's having a difficult time. By the way, everybody will have some difficult times. I don't think anybody's exempt from doubt. To doubt is somewhat normal. No matter how good or how bad you are, and I think it's one of the things that Jesus is going to teach us here. But God is greater than our doubts. 1 John chapter 3, and verse number 20. If our heart condemn us, he is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Boy, our heart can condemn us. Has your heart ever condemned you? Has you ever listened to your heart? Boy, all the pop stars, just do go with your heart. Just go with your heart. That's the last thing in the world, Spanky, you want to do. Don't do that. Boy, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Very strong terminologies God has. You don't go with your own thinking. You don't go with your own feelings. You don't go with your own desires. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
You want to put to death a good relationship? Just do what you want to do. You want to close the door on opportunities? Just go your way. Don't consult the Lord. Just do what you want to do. Boy, God wants to be consulted. He needs to be consulted from his word and from his spirit. He said, Pastor, I don't have a word from God. Then, then don't do anything until he gives you a word. Just wait. Let God help you. So many times I've made a mistake because I impulsively did something I shouldn't have done. I had no, I had no permission from God. I had no direction from God. I just felt like I got to do something. I got to do something. And I did it, and I paid for it. How many of you got that story too? <laughs> yeah, just some dumb things we do. Well, John's in jail. And his uh, protégés come and see him. It's not a good time being him. And, and here he is, a uh, year and a half into the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, he says to his young men, verse number 19, And John calling to him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Basically asking, go ask him if he's really the Messiah. Or are we waiting for another one to come? What do you think he was experiencing there? Some doubt. The Bible calls it, I think, taking the shield of faith to block the fiery darts of Satan. And I think some of those darts are meant to, to shoot over the wall of your mind and land on your head. Of negative thoughts about God, his plan, his timing, his goodness, his control, his omniscience. Boy, it, uh, you know, that they, don't shoot those, don't, they don't shoot those arrows over the wall of the castle to burn a hole in the, in the roof. They, they do it to host, set the whole city on fire. And Satan doesn't shoot those walls, those uh, arrows over my mind to burn a hole in the carpet of my mind to set my whole head on fire with doubt, disillusionment, discouragement. All of us are, are none of us are exempt from having that happen. I can imagine these two young men listening to the question, and talking among themselves, man, he's low. I hope you're going to ask him, because I don't want to ask Jesus this question. But they went, and they went and asked Jesus. Look, we see, see what we hear. It's recorded two times in the Scripture, verse 20. And when the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist, John Baptist, has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And in the same hour he cured, would you underline the word, many of their infirmities and plagues and evil spirits. And unto, would you underline the next word? Many. That were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto him, Go your way, tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised to the poor, and the gospel is preached. And blessed is he that whosoever shall not be offended in me. It's kind of interesting here. So they come and say, you know, Jesus asked us this, and he wants to know if you're really the Messiah. We look for another. Jesus could have, he could have, and justifiably so, what? Who asked you this? John? My cousin? The one who baptized me? The one who heard my father? The one who saw the Shekinah glory? This, spent his whole life preaching about What? That guy? Are you kidding me? But we don't find the response of the Savior that way. He knoweth our frame, but we are but dust. He said, here's what you need to do. In that very hour, he was healing many who were demonically infused. And boy, I tell you what, uh, I, I think at that time, Satan put all as many demons were in probably Israel at that time as were in the rest of the world. 
demon-possessed people, anything that could aggravate Jesus. Demon-possessed people flocking to him, people who are sick, people who are blind, people that are deaf, uh, people that are crippled, some that are dead. And he says, he goes, he says, here's what I need you to do, guys. Go back and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. And tell him that the deaf hear and the blind see. Tell him that the lepers are cleansed. And tell him that the crippled who can't walk can walk. And some people who are dead are come back to life. And then tell him that the gospel is preached unto the poor. Go back and tell him that. It's interesting, when they went back and told him, I believe with all my heart, John got the fuzzy wuzzies again. John, faith fostered, because faith cometh by and hearing by. He heard what Jesus said. They came back with the words of Jesus. And you know, when you have a difficult time, and you will, if you've never had one, hold on to your seatbelt. You're going to have some difficult times come, and when they come, don't run away from church, run to church. Don't quit Sunday school class, get back in Sunday school class. Don't quit the discipleship program, go back and finish level three. Don't, don't get away from your Bible reading, get into the Bible reading. Begin to see what God has to say, and faith cometh by hearing, hearing by God's word, and that can bring comfort to your heart, because God has an ability Doubt is not a problem to him. He said, if you believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. He's, you're not going to shake him on who he is, but we can get shaken on who he is. And the answer to that is the scriptures. I, I plead with you, church family, man, lady, teenager, single adult, spend time in the word of God. Get you a good Bible and love that Bible. Read that Bible. Think about the Bible. Talk about the Bible. Hold it to your chest and, and thank God for it and say, Lord, thank you for the scriptures. Read it till you get holy heartburn. Till things become clear and God begins to work in your heart. Till he becomes close to you. You realize that he's your portion. Because distance is not a challenge for God. Death is not a challenge. He is the resurrection and the life. And, and doubt is not a challenge for God. But we need to hear from God. We need to, we need to have a right relationship with him. And, and don't doubt him. Don't doubt in the night what God shows you in the light. Trust him. Whenever you have doubt is going to be as normal as breathing. It's one of, he's the sinister, Satan is the sinister minister of doubt. When you have fear, that doesn't come from God. Some of us, we're afraid of our shadows. We're afraid of getting sick. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of financial reversal. And we do everything with our, in, our, in our ability to pad our life so nothing ever bad happens to us. Or we think nothing ever bad is going to happen to us. We're just living in fear. The Bible says fear brings torment, but perfect love casteth out fear. Some of you, you're afraid. And, and you're not bad people. Some of us, we have traumatic things that happen in our childhood. Some of us, it's just the way our DNA was. Some of it is sins of generational sin. You got grandparents, you got moms and dads and people that, that uh, you're, you're dealing with the same temptations there. 
But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And knowing his perfect love for you will help cast out that fear so you don't have that. Fear brings torment. It keeps you from doing what you need to do and loving the way you should love and thinking the way you should think. And then when we have doubt, how often did Jesus approach the matter of faith? Faith is only found two times in your Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. But it's found over and over again in our New Testament. Jesus said, O ye of little faith. He said, have faith in God. Hebrews, he reminds us, without faith it's impossible to please God. So we know how valuable faith is to our Lord Jesus Christ. It needs to be put into operation. And whenever you struggle with doubt, and you're going to have it, everything in this world, the media, is intended to get us to be afraid. The statistics that we hear, the, 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 the news that we hear, everything makes you want to be afraid. Causes you to doubt the goodness of God, His provision, His ability to reconcile some of you in relationships and you just don't see an end. You don't see, it, you don't see any hope. You're in, your, you're in the hole of no hope. Trying to wonder it out and there's just, you're just overwhelmed with the cloud of doubt. That's not where God wants you to live. There we need to run to the scriptures and believe what God said. And as I said this morning, I've heard it several times, but it is just God has a hard time believing that we have a hard time believing. He is who he said he was, and without faith it's impossible. Him that comes to God must believe that he is. He's, he is every, everything he said he was. Is he a creator? Is he a comforter? Yeah. Is he a, is he a provider? Is he a protector and a refuge? He's all that and a whole lot more. We go all night with, with adjectives. Now let's, now let's, let's transfer that from here to here. And that has to be done supernaturally by, the, by an understanding of God's wonderful word. We find here that, that uh, Jesus sends them back and, and they comfort John. Now John never leaves the, the jail cell. It's interesting. Of all these things in the book of Isaiah, it was said that Jesus would do. There's one of them that is not listed here. And it's interesting, he was supposed to let uh, captives, uh, prisoners, free. And that's something God did not choose to do for John. I think some of us have a hard time, we get squirrely in the brain because something doesn't happen for us that did happen for somebody else. It's kind of interesting that James, he was the first of the disciples to die after Judas, of course, killed himself. But he was taken by Herod and beheaded. And when he saw that and pleased everybody, then he went and arrested Peter. And that was when Peter was sleeping that night. And the angel came and kicked him in the side or punched him in the side. He said, let's go. We're going to take a walk. Are you going to go out of here? And he went and appeared at Rhoda's house. And, and uh, then he kind of went off the pages of Jerusalem and went someplace else the rest of his ministry, Cappadocia and other places. But boy, if you don't, if you don't have a de decision, by the way, you've got to decide what you believe about God before you hear the question. You got to decide, you know what, I don't know, why did James die and Peter gets out of prison? Why does somebody get delivered from lions and other people get eaten by lions? Why does someone have their children restored back to them and someone else has their children ripped away from them? Why do you, you get to live a long life and someone else dies at a young age with cancer in a long, arduous battle? I don't know. Why does someone live as a profane idiot 
and lives into his 80s and 90s and someone else when they're 15, as holy and as pure as the fresh-driven snow is snuffed out. I don't know that. That's where we got to say, God, I trust you. I'm going to trust you. I don't have to, everything doesn't have to make sense. Make sense. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts and our thoughts. And we can trust the God. We don't have to be here to prove anything to us. Our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleased. John never got out of jail. But his heart, his broken heart, his frustrated heart, he had lived a single life his whole life. He had lived single focused on preparing people for the Messiah. Then he had a weak moment, and then with the words of Jesus was comforted, and he still was beheaded. Is God bad? Is God broken? God mistaken? No, he's, he's still good. We see here that he, he continues, and no doubt after they left, after these two young men go back to talk to John and tell him, here's the words of Jesus, the deaf, they can hear. Blind, they can see. Crippled, they can walk. The lepers are cleansed and getting checked out by the priest. The dead are raised back to life and the gospels preached to the poor. I mean, this is all. We saw it. We saw many of this. The demons are cast out and captives are, hey, we saw it and we heard it. And this is what Jesus wanted you to know. And as he, they went away, no doubt, probably skipping and excited about it, no doubt some of the disciples and there were many of them there at the time, probably not just the 12, but they probably said, can you believe that guy? And that's when Jesus came out with, there are many prophets, but there's not a better prophet born in the world than John, teaching us that even the best of us can struggle with doubt. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter if you're a strong Christian or, or you're a weak Christian, everybody can have a, a battle with Satan and with doubt to come to your heart. And you need to believe God during your difficult times. Let's continue on, and I want to share with you two other thoughts, and we'll try to conclude this evening. Verse 24, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What you went out the wilderness to see, a reed shaking in the wind. You just see a, a reed that was smacked over and turned sideways to the wind. Something that does just a normal thing. What went you out to see? A man clothed in soft raiments? Behold, they are gorgeously appareled and live delicately as are the kings of the court, the Sanhedrin, I think. So what you went out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before thy face, and which prepare thy way before thee. And I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's interesting, too. I just want to tell you, aren't you glad that God is patient with us when we fail? <laughs> aren't you glad when we mess up and we fess up and he loves us in spite of it? He's a great God. And Jesus defended John. When other people probably jump on the bandwagon and say, you know, that guy's a failure. Ah, can you believe that? He said, oh, no, no. He's my man. He did what he was supposed to do, and I'm so proud of him, and there's not a better man than born of woman, reminding us that uh, God... And by the way, when I look at the scriptures, when you look at Old Testament prophets, try, try, to, find, try to find negative things about Abraham in the New Testament. Try to find David and Bathsheba in the New Testament. 
We know all the good, bad, and the ugly, but over here, God has the good. He, he brags on his people. He says, oh, man, Sarah, Abraham, they stagger not the promises of God. They didn't stagger. They were called over the place. They were laying on their ear. What are you talking about? He said, no, nah, they were faithful people. I love them. They didn't, they didn't stagger. I gave them what to do. They just did it. And I was like, well, you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading, the Lord. They were messed up. But he looked beyond our faults and sees our need. and loves us in spite of that. I want to I just tell you the last part. And, of course, you can see there he, he went on to say that you guys didn't listen to John the Baptist. He said he went out there in the wilderness and lived a celibate, faithful life there. And, and you didn't listen to him. You didn't get baptized. You didn't, you didn't follow him there. You had criticism for him. I come eating and drinking and sitting with, with publicans, and you say I'm a wine-bibber and, and, a, and a carouser. This can't make you happy. That's kind of what he kind of went on to say. He said, you guys are like little kids playing in the marketplace, making up, making up toys. And you're playing an instrument, and your friends don't, play, don't, 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 uh, don't get happy at a wedding. And you're, you're playing mourning songs, and they don't, they don't mourn. You're playing little games with each other. When you have someone as, as viable as John the Baptist and as Jesus Christ the Messiah, you just, you're, you're content with your little games. By the way, one thing we don't want to do is be a big baby in Christian life. The old American poet said, Tonight, Shanghai is burning and I am dying too, but there's never a death as real as a death inside of you. Some men go up in shrapnel, others go up in flames, but most men die inch by inch playing little games. Jesus accused the Pharisees of just playing little games in the marketplace like little children. Nah, 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 nah. Just, just messing around when, when they had right in front of them every opportunity to live for the eternal. The last thing you'll have happen is passage scripture, and I'll just give it to you in a storyline. Jesus, the fifth thing he does, he goes and he... He sees a, he, there's a, a, one of the Pharisees that invited him to come in. His name is Simon. There's like 19 Simons, I think, listed in the New Testament. Two of them were apostles, so it was a common name. But one of the Pharisees was named Simon, and he had him to come into his home. It's obvious he wasn't terribly impressed with Jesus. But he did want him to come in, probably to frame him or for him to ask him a hard question of some sort. But while he was there, a lady came in. There seems like there in Matthew 26 is another. This is a two-time happening event. But a lady comes in who everyone knew in that community was a sinful lady. She no doubt had an, had a, uh, an encounter with Jesus prior to that event is what we assume. And she realized that even though she was sin, God looked beyond her fault and saw her need and forgave her. And she came in with an alabaster box and she opened it up and as they sit there in that, in that setting, it's not like a table and chair. They usually would sit and they'd put their feet behind them toward the wall and they would have a small little table and they would sit down and, and uh, lean up against a pillow and their feet would always be behind them because that was where they had walked on the dust and the manure-filled streets and things of that nature. And so their feet would be behind them. Well, this lady came and she took that alabaster box of ointment and she broke it or opened it up and poured it on Jesus, not only seems like his head, but his feet. And she cried as she took her hair and she rubbed his feet. 
and rubbed in this balm into his feet. And Simon, the Pharisee that was there along with others, had in his mind, if he was really the Messiah, he'd know this lady's bad news. Everybody knows that she's immoral. Everybody knows what her life is like. If he were the Messiah, he wouldn't let her even get close to him. And I don't exactly know how she got into the house there. It's kind of a puzzle a little bit, probably something to do with culture. But she cries and she wipes his, her hair as she rubs in that, uh, that ointment into his feet. And he's thinking, this guy is a farce. He wouldn't let a girl touch him and rub that on him. And she would kiss his feet as not a sensual matter, but as, in a, as a brokenhearted and a love and, and bestowed upon him. He said, uh, Simon, let me ask you a question. He said, if there was two guys and their boss called them in and said, you owe me 500 pence, 500 days labor. It's about almost a year and a half of wages. Pay up. And he couldn't pay him. Another guy owed him 50 days work. Both of them are substantial. If someone owed you a year and a half salary, in our day, if that would have been maybe $35,000, $40,000 just on a common thing, and they owed it to you, you'd want to get it back. If someone owed you a month and a half salary, you'd, want it, you'd like to have that too. He said, but if a man came, those two men came, and they couldn't pay. And the boss said, you know what? I forgive you both. You don't owe me anything. He said, which one would love the boss more? And Simon, maybe to cover his, his uh, pharisaical thought, but he answered him right. He said, you know, I guess the one who's been forgiven more. And he said, well, I come to this house, and you didn't even give me a basin to wash my feet. You didn't even greet me in our cultural ways of giving me a kiss, but this lady, this woman won't stop kissing my feet. So you didn't give me any wash, and she's rubbing her hair, taking all the dust and the, the dirt onto our own self to get me clean. You didn't do anything like that. So maybe people who love God more, who are forgiven more, love God a little bit more. It's a beautiful story but it's reminding us that God has no problem with distance. He has no problem with death. He has no problem handling our doubt if I'll go to him with it. And he has no problem handling the downcast. He can forgive anybody. He can forgive to the uttermost and to the guttermost. He can heal anybody. I'm glad we got a God like that. Let's pray together. Can